Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. As Dr. G always says, you guys are our front line. You are out there helping promote health and prevent disease. COVID-19 fatigue is palpable. I get it. Um, I was uh, just having conversations with a few colleagues earlier this week, not medical ones, and it's just it, it's very evident on all of us. But I promise you we are getting there. Um, one thing that I always use as a kind of an informal barometer is how our hospitalizations have been going. And, again, we're seeing kind of a reduction slowly and slowly. I, I, and I do want to caution, as they come down, there is one age group that still looks like it's being hit hard right now, and that's our, our, our younger adults, 20s to 40s. So please be mindful uh, and make sure that you have the protection you need to prevent catching COVID-19 which, you know, physical distancing and, and face mask, yes, but also the vaccine because it helps you and others as well. We'll talk more about the vaccine today. So please continue being mindful. This is the hardest part, right? This is Mother Nature that we're battling. We may feel the fatigue, but she does not. So let's one-up Mother Nature in a loving way uh, to make sure that this infectious process finds its own ending sooner than later. And I promise every listener here, you will help us achieve that. One thing I want to say before we go, so what we'll do is we'll go over the numbers, and then we'll go over the new CDC guidelines that came out a couple days ago um, that hopefully gives you an understanding of a little bit more that we can do now that we've been vaccinated. But on Monday, and Kimberly, my friend, please make sure that we share the Baltimore Sun link. On Monday, I was one of the two Hopkins physicians, in addition to Dr. Sharita Golden, our director for the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Health Equity. She's been on these calls quite a bit. We were there with Mayor Scott to uh, launch a formal partnership between Johns Hopkins University and Medicine and medical, uh, uh, sorry, religious partners throughout Baltimore City, so mosques, synagogues. Uh, temples, churches, we, they will all have the ability to collaborate with us, kind of like how Kimberly and I have been doing to some extent with those Zoom meetings for congregational conversations on COVID. We'll continue doing that with all the congregations. Uh, so you'll see a lot more Kimberly and I, uh, potentially. Uh, so a lot more of those conversations that help congregations phase into kind of this uh, moment where we're at with the pandemic. In addition, these calls that we do on Fridays are going to be a big staple of helping COVID-19 identified leaders in these congregations to stay up to date with information. So we'll share that article. Very exciting. And uh, the quote that the Sun used, which I love and I'll share it with you, is that if medicine is to reaffirm itself as a public trust, it must work with organizations that have the public's trust. So thank you all for all that you've done clearly made its way to leadership in the city who are asking of our great work. So with that said, let's begin to tackle with where we're at now with the pandemic. And then we'll go over a little bit of the guidelines by the CDC. And then we have an amazing guest today. 
I know you guys are like, oh, Dr. Z, you say that about all your guests. Yeah, but this is like, I'm a fan of this physician, and having her here today is going to be fantastic. Hopefully give you a lot of insight into the vaccine processes as they continue moving forward. So let's discuss the numbers. Where are we? Globally, there are 151,403,853 cases. The deaths at 3,183,177, giving us a global mortality rate of 2.1%. In regards to the United States, we have 33,044,872 cases, with a mortality of 589,221 giving us a mortality rate of 1.8% here in the United States. Here in Maryland, we have 447,401 cases, with deaths at 8,555, giving us the state's um, mortality rate at 1.9%. Now, you're always going to those numbers. Let's talk about vaccines. How is our state doing? Last week, we talked about one in four people seem to be vaccinated. Now it's about one in three. 33.5% of people living in Maryland have been fully vaccinated. With close to one out of two, 50%, the exact number is 48%, 48% of individuals have received their first dose. So very exciting. We are moving along, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It is, uh, you know, from my standpoint, it is by far the most exciting thing knowing that there's an end in sight. So with that said, let's talk about the new CDC guidelines that came out. And what does this mean? It means we can do a few things now that we are fully vaccinated. So let's go over the outdoor recommendations from the guidelines from the CDC. So for people who are fully vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated, when can they not wear masks outside? Well, the CDC says you don't have to wear a mask, fully vaccinated or unvaccinated, if you're outdoors by yourself simply walking or running or enjoying a wheelchair roll, um, especially if you're by yourself or with members that you've been uh, living with, right, in your household. This is to emphasize, you know, as we learn more and more about the infectious spread of this virus, we're learning more and more outdoors not that much to some extent, especially if you're alone or especially if you're with people from your household. So no mask needed, vaccinated and unvaccinated. Next, what if you're going to gather with a small group outdoors? And this small group all is, uh, is all vaccinated individuals. Well, for all the vaccinated individuals, masks can come down. And if you have one or two people who are unvaccinated, you can also be without a mask. So fully vaccinated and unvaccinated, small gatherings with a predominance of fully vaccinated people. And when I say predominance, I mean more than 90% and so. However, if you're going to do a small outdoor gathering that has a good mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated people, those that are fully vaccinated outdoor, small gathering with a mix, the fully vaccinated can be without a mask. Those unvaccinated need to wear a mask. This is where we begin to deviate. What about dining outdoors with friends from many households? So you're going to have, a, again, a variety of vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Well, if you're dining outdoors with a variety of people, 
Again, you're fully vaccinated, your mask can stay off. For those who are unvaccinated, the CDC does encourage wearing a mask. So the fully vaccinated individuals in the outdoor life, it's spring, summer's rolling around, we do recognize a bit more um, returning to normal life. The one outdoor event that the CDC does recommend to wear a mask is if you're going to attend a very crowded event, such as a parade or a sporting event. So if you're going to attend a very crowded event or close proximity with a lot of individuals, uh, uh, again, it is encouraged, regardless of vaccination status, to wear a mask. So unvaccinated people are encouraged to wear a mask in small gatherings or dining outdoor, unless that small gathering is you're the only person and everyone else around you has been vaccinated or you're just by yourself. So more to come as the CDC begins to drop us new guidelines to recognize that this vaccine is helping protect us and allowing us to return to our normal life. We're excited, everyone. I, can, I feel it. Right? So good, very good. Now, let's talk about the arsenal we have. It's human ingenuity about the vaccines a little bit more. Kimberly Munson, my friend, hopefully you've had less coffee in the last 15 minutes. Do you want to introduce our guest? Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. G. So I would like to reintroduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Kassara Talat, Assistant Professor in the Johns Hopkins Department of International Health within the Division of Global Disease Epidemiology and Control. Welcome, Dr. Talat, and thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much, Kimberly, for the invitation, and Dr. G, a pleasure as always. Um, and, and can you remind me, am I saying your name correctly? Yes. Perfect. Great, thank you. Um, so before we begin our conversation on children and vaccines, can you just uh, provide a brief background about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. So I'm an infectious disease doctor, um, as well as being a pediatrician and an internist. And I have been working on vaccine clinical trials at the School of Public Health for 14 years now. Um, on a variety of different vaccines, but for the last year, we've been focused on exclusively on COVID, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. So we've um, helped with the clinical trials of two of the vaccines for the adults, and now we are working on the trial um, for the COVID-19 in children under 12. Perfect. Thank you. So to start, how does COVID-19 affect children and adolescents? So for the most part, children and adolescents do really well with COVID-19 infection. They are more likely to be asymptomatic than um, adults. They are far less likely to be hospitalized than adults, um, especially adults who are over the age of, um, of uh, 50 or who have underlying medical problems. Um, but they do, they can get sick with COVID and they can be hospitalized. And um, almost 300 children in the United States have died over the last year from COVID-19 illness. And um, about 30 or 40 more have died from the, the very serious inflammatory syndrome that can happen in children um, after they've had even asymptomatic COVID illness that is called multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, which can affect their, their skin, their heart, their intestines, 
and cause um, children to be in the hospital for for a long time. Um, so it still uh, it still can be a very serious infection in children, and we see, um, especially teenagers, as they start to go back to school and back to their normal activities. There's more cases in teenagers and in young adults, as Dr. G mentioned. Um, the other thing, the other way that COVID has affected children is through the lockdowns and through the closures of the schools. And this has really impacted their educational development, their social development, their emotional development, and their mental health. And so um, it's been, it's probably been more of a mental health crisis in some ways for kids than it has been for, uh, from an infectious disease crisis, but it still has had significant impacts on children. Now, this might um, go beyond, well, actually, no, you did mention a pediatrician. So I'm wondering, um, is there certain conditions that children may have that make them more vulnerable to more severe symptoms, say asthma, for example? Asthma is, is kind of weird because you would expect that people with asthma have more severe symptoms, but for most people with mild to moderate asthma, it doesn't seem to be a huge risk factor, but obesity is a risk factor. Um, and we also know that, um, that certain underlying medical conditions, such as diabetes, type 2 diabetes especially, um, increase the risk of, severity, of severe disease. And we see more and more of our, our teens and, and children developing what we used to call adult-onset diabetes um, younger. The, the, other, um, the other thing that we've seen is that um, our, our black and brown children are disproportionately affected by COVID. They're more likely to get infected. They're more likely to end up hospitalized. Um, and so it's, it may have, um, it probably has more to do with just that the, the cases are higher in, in communities of color, and so they're more likely to be exposed. But there may be other underlying factors that put them at additional risk. Thank you. Um, so just to clarify with our audience, what are the minimum ages that um, our current vaccines are out there that people can get, if the wording is coming out right, that people can get yeah. vaccinated? Yeah. So for the Johnson & Johnson and Moderna vaccines, those right now are only authorized for adults, so 18 and older. For the Pfizer vaccine, it is authorized down to age 16. So so, you know, high school juniors and seniors could potentially get vaccinated. Um, and and uh, earlier this month, Pfizer applied to the FDA to um, increase the authorization down to age 12. And so we anticipate that within the next month that this vaccine will be available for children down to age 12. And I know Moderna is also doing, uh, has also done studies in adolescents, so I anticipate they will also file for an increased authorization down to that age range. And as I mentioned before, um, we, we are currently doing the trials for children under 12. So I anticipate that by early fall, hopefully we'll have data on the school-age kids, so kids five and older, and that by later in the fall, we should hopefully have the data on um, children um, younger than five years of age. That kind of ties into my next question, but before I lose this thought, how do they determine, you know, either between 16 and over and 18 and over, that two-year difference, what is appropriate for that age group, whether that vaccine is safe? 
So, so what happened was when Pfizer applied for its emergency use authorization, they had already expanded the trials down to age 16, and so they had data from 16 and 17-year-olds that they could show to the FDA and say that we know that our vaccine is safe, induces a good immune response, and is well-tolerated in this age group. And Moderna had not yet expanded their trial, which is what the and Johnson Johnson, which is what the difference is, and why the FDA expanded it to 16 for Pfizer and 18, and um, for Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. So it, it's based on data. It's based on on doing the studies in that age group. Okay, great, thank you. So I know that you're already uh, dove into this a little bit, but um, if there's any other information you can share about when the clinical trials are scheduled for children, or are they already happening? So for Moderna and Pfizer, they are already happening. Um, we are doing the Pfizer trial at um, Johns Hopkins, and the University of Maryland is doing the trial um, uh, uh, for Moderna. Um, we um, we are hoping to. <laughs> We're in the phase one trial right now, where it's very small numbers, trying to identify the best dose for each age group of children. Um, because children are not little adults, and we sometimes have to go down on the age and the doses for them. Um, and hopefully we'll start the phase two and three trials with a bigger trial um, either uh, it, a little bit later in the spring, early summer. And so hopefully we'll enroll um, kids over the summer and have data in the fall. So... You know, I'm going off a little bit, but how how do you recruit children to participate in these trials? So usually recruiting pediatrics, uh, recruiting children for studies is really hard. But for this um, study, it has been, um, you know, it's been really easy um, because people understand the power of the vaccine and want to see their children vaccinated and as people are vaccinated themselves and they realize that their their um, their freedom is limited because their children are not yet vaccinated and they want to protect their children they have um, shown great interest in the trials and so people have been contacting us before we even knew we were doing a study and asking to be put on the list um, for the study so we haven't actually done any recruitment it's just been um, people contacting and reaching out to us. Um, and as we talk more about um, vaccines for children, and we can see that, you know, the vaccines now have been given Pfizer Moderna to over 100 million adults in the United States and um, with uh, a great safety profile, um, I think people feel more confident about the vaccines and, um, are, are, and want their children um, protected as well. Oh, this is Dr. G. I have a quick question. By the way, it is always good to have you on. Um, you uh, you have an amazing ability to um, share information in a manner where it's digestible, it's actionable, and it's comforting. So thank you. You're always a, uh, you know, when we, when I see your name coming on, I get excited on my end. Um, hence thank why you I'm so much, Dr. Board. G, for your kind words. Um, no worries. So my question, so I, I have two questions. One is, um, I was once told by my pediatric colleagues, so again, to our listeners, I, I, um, I'm a, an adult physician who sees adult patients. So the pediatric world, I have to stretch my brain back to uh, medical school years and so forth. But the, the pediatric uh, enrollment... That's that long um, for you. So that's true. That's true. Very, very good point. Um, 
So for adults, we kind of are like, yes, 18 to 90, we bring you in. For, for children, yeah. is it true that we do subgroups just because their, you know, their physiology yeah. does change? So is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're doing um, in different age groups. So as I mentioned, um, Pfizer initially enrolled 16 and 17-year-olds because they're the closest to adults. And then when they found it was safe and well-tolerated in that age group, they went down 12 to 15. And then when they um, when they found it was safe and well-tolerated in that age group, we went 5 to 11. And then we're doing 2 to 5 and then un- under 2. Um, so we're, do- we're going in a stepwise manner and making sure that it is safe and, and well-tolerated as well as um, gives a good immune response in each age group as we go down. And, and you know, children um, are protected uh, by regulatory agencies in ways that adults are not. So um, not only do the parents have to give consent for a child to participate in a clinical study, but the children also have to agree they can't be forced. So they have to give their assent. Um, and so we spend a lot of time talking to both the parents and the child um, about risks and benefits. And um, and it's a it's a really different process than enrolling adults for a study. No, that, and that's good to know. And actually, that's um, for our listeners. It's you know one of the reasons why these studies uh, for enrollment can take some time is you know these uh, not red tape, but just more protection for a vulnerable population, which are our children. One comment though I do want to ask though is, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong or this, but. Most vaccine trials, don't they tend to happen in the young just because you know, the age group that gets the most vaccines of all adults? So, um, yeah. No, it, it, okay. Absolutely. So yeah, most, most vaccines are targeting children, and um, so most vaccines are, are the, the majority of people who get them are children. But even in those vaccines that we know that the only people who are going to get them once the vaccine is licensed are babies, um, let me know if that background noise is too loud and I can go somewhere quieter. Oh, you're, you are fine, I promise you. Okay, okay. Um, so the, um, even, even when we're, we're doing vaccines to target babies, we will still actually um, test the vaccine in a small number of adults first just to make sure that it, the safety profile is what we'd expect and that it induces a good immune response. Sometimes in adults, adults may have too much of their own immune response against the disease to, to mount it, but, but, but we, we, we will look to make sure it's safe first. And then once we find that it's safe, we'll go into a little bit older children, and then we'll go down into older babies and then younger babies just to make sure that the vaccines continue to behave as we expect. Um, but for a vaccine like this, where everybody in the population is targeted, we clearly did the full study in adults prove that it was um, effective and safe because also adults are the ones that are most severely affected by COVID and the most likely to die or be hospitalized. And then we moved into children, again, because they were less likely to be as severely affected, but there's still too many children dying from COVID. No, thank you for that. And, um, and, and again, uh, the great insight, great, great um, understanding about vaccines and children with those two questions. Kimberly, I think you have one as well. Uh, back to you, my friend. Yes, thank you. Um, so, Dr. Talat, do children respond to vaccines any differently than adults? I, I'm thinking back to when I had the Moderna. First shot was okay, a little sore. Second one, I was ill for about a, a day. Um, do you think that children would experience maybe similar symptoms? Um, 
So when they did the trial in the 12 to 15-year-olds, they found that the symptoms were similar to a, to 16 to 20-year-olds, so there wasn't any worse. But as we're going into younger ages, we're doing different doses to see because um, children have a much more robust immune response than do adults. And so... Um, and some of those side effects are due to the immune response. So we're testing different doses, starting at a low dose and either going up or down based on the the, the symptoms that we're doing. And we're doing a small number of children um, and looking. And then if they look okay, then we go to a slightly bigger number of children, but it's still really small. So we're doing this very, very carefully, much more carefully than we did with the adults just to make sure that they tolerate it and that they don't have, we're, 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 you know, these vaccines do cause side effects and they do cause you to feel achy and have a fever potentially and headachy um, for a day or two after, especially after the second dose, sometimes after the first dose. Um, and we want to make sure that the vaccine is that safe and that well tolerated in children as it is in adults. And so we're doing this very slowly and carefully and looking at a variety of doses to try to figure out what the best, um, safest, and, and most tolerated dose is for them. So you mentioned the safety of the vaccine. So what are some of the things that, you're, that they look for, um, you know, to make sure, like, when they want to go for approval, what are the kind mm -hmm. of results they're, they're looking to see? So, and I love the background of the birds, by the way. Anyway, it's really adding to the whole conversation. <laughs> I do. Well, I spent all day long inside today. I figured since I was on the phone, I could sit outside for a few minutes in this glorious weather. Um, so the, um, the, the things that they look for, so that we actually have a list of side effects and um, and for all studies, it's the whatever the expected side effects are. Um, we actually ask people to tell us about it every day after they get vaccinated, um, both in the adult and the pediatric trials. So um, for these vaccines, it's things like a sore arm, um, pain at the injection site, um, redness or swelling at the injection site. It's um, headache, fatigue, muscle aches, fever. Those are things that we ask every day. Have you experienced that? And then on top of that, we ask, have you experienced anything else? Um, and the, when the regulators look at this data, they want to know how many people, and we also ask them to grade it. Is it mild, which means that it's not really, it, you feel it, but it doesn't interfere with your normal activities. Is it moderate, do you feel it, and it's just having some ability to interfere with your normal activities, like you're tired and you couldn't go for your normal walk or run or play normally, um, or is it severe um, where you're, um, you can't do your normal activities or they're significantly limited, like after the second dose, do you spend the day in bed because you're not feeling well? Um, so we ask for that, and when the regulators look at the data, they look to see how many people had headaches, how many of those headaches were mild, how many were moderate, how many were severe, and they look at all of these side effects and um, and sort of do a, is this a tolerable level of side effects? Is this the, do the risks outweigh the benefits? Do the benefits outweigh the risks? 
Um, for these side effects, they're 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 short last lasting and they don't do any permanent damage. And so most of us can tolerate not feeling good for a day or two, and then being able to go on with our the rest of our 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 week or life protected from COVID. Um, and so that, um, but that's what we we ask for those things every day. Um, the regulators look at that and. Um, you know, if you're seeing lots of high fevers, you may not approve something for people who are at increased risk from having super high fevers. But for the most part, in the in the studies that we have the results for so far, the fevers have not been that high. And so they've been, um, you know, the, the benefits far outweigh the risks. That's great information. Thank you for sharing that. So the next two questions um, I get very often from our community members. And... So the first one is, um, once the vaccine is available for children, should their child get it? Because there's, you know, there still is a lot of fears. You know, there's still a lot of fears around them getting the um, influenza vaccine. So what would you say to parents, grandparents, other relatives that are considering um, having their child get vaccinated? So I think that this is a decision that every person has to make for their family and their child, but I would say from a public health perspective, the vaccines will be authorized in children if they're found to be safe and effective. And um, as I said, this disease has had devastating impacts on our whole world, um, but on every aspect of our communities from from work life to home life to school and and especially mental health and I, the way to get us out of the pandemic, um, the way to protect our children so they could go back to school, hopefully without masks, um, but at least go back to school full time with a normal cohort of, of classmates, the way to um, allow them to do their normal um, activities and um, stop the infections is to vaccinate as many people as possible. And so... Um, you know, we know that these vaccines, um, especially Pfizer and Moderna, which are the ones that are in the pediatric trials right now, are very safe in adults. Um, we anticipate they will continue to be safe as we go down in um, in younger age groups. But we're doing these studies right now to find that out, and they'll only be authorized if they are found to be safe. Um, we know that they're incredibly effective at preventing um, illness, hospitalizations, and deaths, and um, and. And, you know, one child dying from COVID or being hospitalized with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, once there's a vaccine that's available that would prevent that from happening, is one child too many. So I, I have a question in regards to, um, so I'm going to ask to extrapolate a little bit. Um, so we've been talking about pedi uh, the pediatric population. What about those uh, mothers who um, may be pregnant at the moment or breastfeeding? Mm -hmm. I imagine those trials may be even more cumbersome to come across. But they, any, you know, uh, yeah, so there was just a published, there was a, just a study published in the New England Journal, I think like today or recently, that showed that the vaccine is safe and effective in pregnant women. Ah, fantastic. Yes, protecting yeah. them before they're even born. I love it. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so to our yeah. listeners, this is what Dr. Zettelman has always emphasized. Hey, uh, what I think right now could be wrong or could be updated by the time the end of the day happens in the time of pandemic. So good to know the studies out there. Perfect, perfect. I'll, yeah. I'll have to Google and, and yeah. find it, but that's so safe and pregnant, perfect. 
Yeah, and and there's um, the CDC has been keeping a registry of pregnant women through the V-Safe program. So whenever you get the COVID vaccine, you're given information about V-Safe, which is a, a symptom monitoring program that will monitor you for a year after you've been vaccinated. Please enroll in V-Safe because it allows us to gather data on millions of people and find really rare events. Um, but pregnant women are being captured in that system. They're being followed in a registry. There's been no evidence of any um, of any harm, and in fact, there's been shown benefit already. And and you protect not only yourself, but you protect your 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 baby when it's in your in your uterus, and then um, also after it's born, because um, antibodies will go across the placenta from the mom. Not the, not the vaccine. The vaccine doesn't go across the placenta. The vaccine doesn't enter the baby. The vaccine doesn't affect the baby in any way, but the mom's antibodies will cross across the placenta to her baby and protect the baby for the first few months of its life. And in, in um, breastfeeding uh, moms, again, the vaccine doesn't go into the milk, but the antibodies that she makes will go into the milk and could potentially, we don't know this yet, but we know that for other diseases, the antibodies in breast milk do protect babies um, for a breastfed, and we, we assume that this is true as well for COVID. Great to hear. That very comforting. So thank you so much. Um, sorry, uh, and wait a, you're still prepared for kind of a, a question um, that uh, just came up naturally through this, so thank you so much. Kimberly, I know you have a few more questions and some of them coming in from the community, so over to you, my friend. Yes, thank you. Um, so my last question, um, Dr. Talat, before we go over to community questions, is, and I know Dr. G reviewed the, the latest CDC guidelines, but until a vaccine is available for children, what do you recommend um, as far as them being around other family members, whether they're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, playgrounds, et cetera? So, so I'm going to um, use what we do as an example because we're in that position where I, my husband and I are, are physicians, we're adults, we're vaccinated, my kids are not. Um, my parents have just recently been vaccinated, so now when we go to my parents' house, we all still wear masks because the children aren't vaccinated, but they can now hug my parents. Um, we, we, wherever we go, we are still masked um, just to be on the safe side, um, especially now that new the CDC guidelines, if we're walking by ourselves, we can take our masks off. But, um, but if we're walking someplace where it's crowded or there's other people whose vaccine status we don't know, um, we are still wearing our masks the kids when they're doing, um, when they're at the playground, when they're um, doing um, their sports, whatever they happen to be, they still wear a mask. Um, but now they're going to school um, in socially distanced and masked, um, and masked and being very careful to follow all the CDC's guidelines. And, and I'm hoping that they'll have more, as, as more people are vaccinated and the virus transmission goes down even further, that they will um, continue to have more opportunities to have more normal activities until the vaccine is available for them. Great, thank you but so we don't, much. We don't, we don't go inside of restaurants and eat inside. Um, we still try to be, you know, we still try to, the outside is better than inside rule and trying to be very careful in order to protect them. Yeah, that sounds uh, very similar to what I'm doing. Um, I just celebrated uh, my son's 13th birthday and even uh, just going in the mall the first time I've been since the pandemic um, at a time where it was slow, I 
still not comfortable with eating a pretzel <laughs> and taking a mess. And so we went outside on the bench, ate the pretzel, and, and went back in. So, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, still um, taking those precautionary measures. So, again, thank you so much. This has been a fabulous conversation. As always, I listen to your other talks as well. I know you have another one coming up soon, um, and I just appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, there is a, a couple community questions. I know one specifically about this talk, but did you have any other closing comments or, Dr. G, anything else that you want to mention before we move over to the community questions? Not on my end. I think let's let's jump uh, right into them. Uh, strike while they're hot, because this has been an amazing talk. Um, uh, we have great speakers. I promise you all. You, you, the listeners know this. But this one has made me grab some pen and paper and, and take notes. So I'm eager to hear what the community has to ask as well. So well done. This has been a great hour. Yeah. Thank you. Agreed. Now I <laughs> thank you I, very much. I think this, this, we already kind of um, answered this question, but I want to make sure that um, our community member did get an answer. So if you don't mind, I just want to repeat it just to make sure um, we, we have an answer for them. So um, they thought the testing for the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds was scheduled to be completed in August. Uh, Governor Hogan announced in his press conference um, I guess this message came through yesterday, that the Pfizer vaccine should be available to administer to 12 to 15-year-olds by late June or early July at the latest. Um, could you please provide an update on the timeline? So again, I know we kind of briefly discussed this, but just if you could reiterate um, yeah. that. Yeah. I actually think it'll probably be earlier. Um, I, I, the, as I mentioned, Pfizer submitted their, um, their, their application to expand down to 12 um, on April 9th. And the FDA generally has been very responsive to EUA requests. Um, you know, they were incredibly busy the last couple of weeks um, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine safety issues. Um, but I anticipate that within the next couple of, the next few weeks, that they will have emergency use authorization. Now, the decision will, be, will need to be made because adults are still at more risk from COVID than adolescents, whether to expand the age range um, to adolescents right as the EUA is authorized, that the emergency use authorization is, is given or wait until the, all the adults who want the vaccine are, have the opportunity to get the vaccine before they expand it to, to adolescents. But I, I think by the end of May, we'll have an authorization for vaccines for down to 12 years of age. That's very encouraging. Thank you. Um, so the next question um, is a more generalized question maybe for Dr. G. Um, so as they understand it, viruses kick in the body's immune response, thereby causing many of the same symptoms of fever, cough, etc. Other viruses find a home in particular parts of the body, such as shingles in the nerves. Has a particular part of the body been identified as particular to COVID-19? Actually, either one of you. So, COVID nineteen um, attacks. Uh, uh, COVID nineteen enters the body and enters cells through a receptor that's on many different kinds of tissues, and so it can actually go to lots of different places in the body. We know that it causes really severe lung disease, but it can cause a variety of different kinds of of medical problems. But unlike the shingles, the shingles virus, uh, which is actually a chickenpox virus, um, unlike that virus, 
um, which lives in the nerves after you've been infected and can come out and cause shingles many, many years later, the, there is no evidence that the SARS-CoV-2 virus or any coronavirus uh, lasts for a very long time in the body of healthy people. Now, for people who are um, have severe immune-compromising conditions, um, it can last for, they've, they've been able to find the virus being shed from their respiratory um, from the respiratory tract for um, several months, but I, but for the, but for the rest of us who um, have, uh, you know, normal or even relatively normal, um, or and not severely impaired immune systems, we clear the virus and it's gone. Great, uh, that was a perfect answer. That was like, oh, that sounds much more uh, appropriate for an infectious disease doctor. So great. Thank you. Uh, and hopefully that's a good peace of mind for a lot of our listeners. Yeah. Thank you. So um, the next one is Dr. G, relating to um, these uh, congregational reopenings. <clears throat> Can churches relax the symptom and or temperature checks on entry for those fully vaccinated? So I, I still am in favor strongly of an infectious control policy where if you have symptoms, I would stay home. Um, obviously, this can get a little bit more granular depending on one law, are these my allergies, et cetera. And we're happy to tackle those kind of a independently through those intimate congregational conversations. But a strong advocacy for if, you, if you're not feeling well or you develop a new cough or feel like you've had chills, Stay home. Just, I, I wouldn't risk it. I, I always tell our listeners, I think the coughing in public is the new smoking in public, right? If you pull out a cigarette in, in your church, you're probably going to get stared at. If you cough, you're probably going to be stared at as well. So I would say if you have symptoms, stay home. Now, I will say about the temperature check, and by all means, you know, our guest uh, uh, commentator today, please weigh in. I've never been in favor of them. I think if you have a fever, you should stay home. It's going to be noticeable to you. I feel like the temperature check a lot of times subjects one individual to a lot of close proximity with others. In addition to, we know a lot of this virus tends to spread in, uh, in patients who don't have symptoms. So from my standpoint, I, I've always felt that the temperature checks are more like trying to catch a golf ball with a volleyball net not going to be great, and it might not be a great use of resources, especially because sometimes it's hard to know what to do with the temperature. And, you know, did, did someone, is it a hot day and they're waiting outside for quite some time? Did they spike here and so forth? So I've never been in favor. I think there's better ways to do mitigation of spread of COVID-19 in a congregation, infectious control policies, face masking, and so forth. But by all means, Dr. Todd, do you have a thought on that as well? I completely agree. I think that the temperature set checks puts the person checking the temperatures at risk and, and is otherwise um, more for, I think Dr. Fauci called it theater as opposed to yeah. true public health intervention because the people spreading the, back, the virus to other people, for the most part, don't have fevers. They're completely asymptomatic. They don't know that they're infected or if they have very mild infection. And so those who are... Um, those who have a fever usually don't feel well enough to be out and, and about in the community. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. And I always love when this question comes up because, can, Dr. G, you know my story. Can I share my story? Share away, my friend, yeah. 
So, you know, I was, um, it always makes me think of when I was waiting for the dentist and, you know, you couldn't enter and you had to wait in your car. You would text them or call them when you were there and they would come out. And it had been a half an hour I was waiting in my car and it was a warm day out. And they came out and checked my temperature and it said 106. And I was like, I don't think I would be waiting here to see the dentist if I had a fever of 106. But my body temperature was warm. It was a warm day out. I was dressed warm because it was always cold in my office. And then, you know, when I went inside and it was back to close to my, my average 97 and some. So I just love sharing that example because, you know, I just thought it was funny. I was like, yeah, the last place I want to be if I had a temperature would be at the dentist. Um, and the other thing I think was a good point if you want to add on about um, when she had, or he or she had mentioned about those fully vaccinated because do we know that who, and who is vaccinated and who is not vaccinated and what kind of challenges we run into there? If either one of you could add yeah. to that, if you know where well, I'm going with that. I'll, I'll, I'll begin to tackle that because we've had this really on some of the congregational calls where, yeah, you know, it, it was fascinating because someone from the congregation would say, we should ask everyone if they're vaccinated. And I, I stepped up and said, that's, you know, those are, while we encourage as scientists, public health officials, it's still a personal decision. And, you know, there could be people who can't get vaccinated after great conversations with their uh, doctors. So, you know, I've always been in a, a policy of encouragement, but I, I wouldn't ask. Um, I feel like you, you just kind of impose into a very personal decision um, by asking and, and get you into conversations that can become complicated. So if, if you're a congregational leader or one of the individuals on this call, I would just strongly encourage advocating for the vaccine. There's nothing wrong with that, but I wouldn't go about asking your congregants, are you vaccinated? Dr. Talat, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Hello? Sorry, um, I completely agree. I, I, um, I think providing people with information, having dialogues with them about, um, about the vaccine and encouraging them to be vaccinated is very different from saying you can't come into our church if you're not vaccinated. Kimberly, hopefully that helped answer the, yes, the community no, concern. Yes. So, and by the way, sorry, whenever I hear a silence, I've always get, I look at my phone, I'm like, did I accidentally hang up? <laughs> no, I, I muted myself because of the, the background noise, but then I forgot to unmute. <laughs> no, I agree with Kimberly. I love the bird chirping in the background. I'm imagining our listeners are enjoying it as well. It's very yeah. therapeutic. So yeah. back to you, uh, Kimberly. Yes, and I'm thinking um, of that tree by the MFL building, that, that beautiful tree by the center tower and the birds in the background, but that's what I'm picturing in my head as I hear the birds. So, um, but again, so those are our questions. Again, um, I always appreciate our, our listeners for their thoughtful questions and taking the time um, to join us and, and send us their questions. And thank you, Dr. Talat. It's great to have you join us again. It's been very um, insightful conversation. I always appreciate your feedback and expertise, and of course, Dr. G. Um, so I hope that, you know, maybe you'll join us again. I would love to. It's always a lot of fun to come and talk to you and Dr. G. Great. Right. Thank uh, you. We will have you on, especially once the pediatric vaccine approvals happen. We yeah. will gladly have you back on. Perfect. Absolutely. Awesome.
Kimberly, over to you for closing thoughts. Listeners, have a great weekend. So uh, before I turn the call over to Reverend Teague, please um, join us for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call, scheduled for Friday, May the 7th at 11 a.m. for an exciting myth-busting session with Dr. G and Kimberly. So now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly, and um, thank you um, to the two docs today. Uh, this is just amazing to me. Uh, again, the great information. I'm just really appreciative, so thank you, thank you all. Um, today I wanted to share a blessing that really comes from two quotes um, that came to me this week that uh, really spoke to me. Um, the first one was from uh, Bill Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the quote is that in God's economy, nothing is wasted. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. And the second quote that came my way was from Howard Thurman. Um, Howard Thurman was a classmate of Martin Luther King, Jr., Martin Luther King Sr. and uh, was very influential in his writings uh, for Martin Luther King Jr. So this is a quote from him, um, Howard Thurman. I will sing a new song. I must learn the new song for the new needs. I must fashion now new words, born of all the new growth in my life, of my mind, of my spirit. I must prepare for new melodies that have never been mine before, that all that is within me, within me may lift my voice into God. The two quotes seem to me to be kind of bookends for this place that we are in right now, this kind of in-between, and that led me to this blessing. God of love and grace, God of redemption and forgiveness, God of creation and growth, we join together. We're between, between in so many ways, between vaccinated and free to be with people, between rampant virus that we could not control to hope for herd immunity, between going back to activities as they were and still needing to mask, staying distant in certain places. We are between our grief and hope, between pain and healing, between isolation and connection. It is in this space between that we ask that you give us patience. We ask that you give us a new song, a new song for new needs. Let us fashion new words, born of new growth in mind and spirit. Help us to prepare new melodies so that all that is within us may become our lifted voices to God. In this in-between, may we be assured that there is nothing lost, that all suffering and struggle becomes wisdom and empathy and peace. All experiences captured so that we are more whole and more present. May we experience connection as we move through this between to our new song. Amen. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Reverend Teague, and thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Have a great weekend. Be safe and stay well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.